We were going to call this series Shiny Object Syndrome for the fact that all these new technologies come along and people get really excited about them. But we chose instead to call it This Does Not Compute, a podcast series about what's going on with emerging technologies, with the technologies that you read about in the papers, and we get real experts to come in and talk about it. I'm Caitlin Chin, I work at CSAS, and I'll be your host for this podcast. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Courtney C. Raj, a journalist, scholar, and free expression advocate. Dr. Raj focuses on issues of tech policy and human rights, internet governance and the geopolitics of technology, and media sustainability in the future of journalism, among other things. She has had a really fascinating career. She spent seven years as the Director of Advocacy and Communications at the Committee to Protect Journalists and previously worked as a journalist in the Middle East. She is also the author of Cyber Activism and Citizen Journalism in Egypt, Digital Dissidents and Political Change. Most recently, she joined the Open Markets Institute as the Director of the Center for Journalism and Liberty. So first of all, Courtney, thank you so much for joining us at this really pivotal moment. Technology platforms have had a complicated relationship with the news media for a long time. I think it's safe to say that. But things have really heated up in this past year between AI companies scraping websites to train algorithms or social media billionaires like Elon Musk instituting policies that are hostile to journalists, plus just ongoing trends in online advertising. So I thought this could maybe be a good place to start with. Just what is the state of the news media today? How did we get here? And how has technology changed the role of the press over time? Oh, so just a few easy questions to, to talk about. <laughs> so the status of the press today is really complicated. On the one hand, we've seen amazing things happening. There have been incredible global collaborations among investigative journalists that have helped recover billions of dollars in public funds, have led to the resignation of corrupt officials, and have you know really shown how important journalism is to holding those in power accountable. We've seen journalism play a really important role throughout society, throughout democracies, but also they are under pressure as you've never seen before. So there have been thousands of media outlet closures over the past decade in the United States and around the world, which was exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. The platformization of the press, which is essentially the intermediation of large technology platforms in the business of news, in the journalism field and the news industry, has really shifted the independence, freedom, and sustainability of news media and made it very precarious. So we see platforms, obviously, I think a lot of your listeners will know that the press is facing unprecedented economic challenges in terms of raising the money it needs on a regular basis to do journalism in the public interest in part because the digital advertising ecosystem is dominated by a couple of monopolies, but also because of this tension between needing to play to the logic of the platforms and their engagement metrics and what is valued on those platforms 
as opposed to what journalists would determine would be in the public interest and what they would editorially independently decide is important. You can see that, for example, in how engagement metrics are used to drive traffic and decide stories. So, you know, it's a very complicated environment that that the news industry exists in. It is hanging by a thread in terms of sustainability. At least in the United States, we do have a tradition of philanthropic giving, which helps. Um, you do have digital subscribers. You know, you still have some small businesses, but in much of the world, that's not the case. And I think it's really important that we think about the fact that this is not a problem of the industry's own making. They are constrained by the platform economy, which isn't just about the publishing industry. It's the economy writ, writ large. So still, journalism is as important as ever, but under a lot of pressure. Yeah, journalism is incredibly important. It just, like, like you mentioned, that doesn't always align with the economic realities that, that the industry is unfortunately facing. I want to touch upon the engagement metrics that you mentioned, but I wanted to get back to that economic problem as well. And I was actually struck by some of the statistics that Senator Amy Klobuchar raised actually at an event that you hosted, Courtney, with the Center for Journalism and Liberty. Senator Klobuchar said that one third of newspapers would be gone by 2025. News deserts are increasing around the country. The news industry went from $37 billion in ad revenue to $9 billion in about a decade from 2008 to 2020. And this, this is a trend that we're seeing not only in the United States, but all around the world. And we've seen governments and politicians in so many countries, the UK, Brazil, India, Taiwan, um, start to examine this relationship between technology platforms and news. And some politicians have even gone further to start to introduce and even pass laws. And I wanted, I was wondering if we could talk about that. Canada recently passed the Online News Act earlier this year. We have some legislation pending in the United States. So what, what's the status of, of, of these measures? And where do, you, where do you see things going from here? What's interesting is I think we are seeing a global response to the unfettered ability of platforms to kind of shape the rules of the game and not only to shape you know the logic by which journalism has to work but also again the the broader economy and that they have benefited from a range of protective legal regulatory measures that have given them unprecedented and unparalleled power. Well, whether we're talking about exemptions from libel law because of Section 230, which is coupled with exemptions from anti-discrimination requirements, you know, the lack of any sort of privacy constraints, at least in the U.S., and and limited privacy constraints in terms of what that means for data and all of that. So. It's a very unequal playing field. And I think that yeah. that competition authorities around the world are waking up to that. And they are trying to address that in the digital advertising market. You can see this with the Department of Justice uh, lawsuit against Google with some of the actions in the EU, as well as around, again, India's competition authority is looking into this, Brazil, et cetera. Meanwhile, you've also seen a recognition that publishers need to be able to negotiate collectively because there are currently no forum 
for them to really engage with the tech platforms. So if a publisher is, say, very large and influential, like the Associated Press or the New York Times, maybe they can deal with the platforms and they'll get a response back. But the vast majority of news publishers around the world are not going to get a call back. There is nowhere to negotiate. So in one sense, these are creating spaces for negotiating and they're allowing publishers to collectively negotiate so that if you are a, you know, three-person local rural news outlet, you can combine power with other small outlets so that you get a better deal. So those are really important initiatives because they are one part of a broader effort to rebalance the playing field. They are not the end-all be-all. They are not going to save journalism, but they are going to be an important aspect of that. And especially, I think, as we see these news media bargaining codes and how different countries, especially in the EU, are looking at copyright and licensing is requiring that tech platforms pay for the news they use, whether that's through crawling or display, whether that's in their AI models and foundation models, whether that's in making their platforms more valuable and useful to their users. There are many ways that journalism improves the experience on platforms and includes and improves the products that these companies offer. And thus far, it has been completely at the discretion of the platforms if they want to pay anything. And those have been done ad hoc, if at all. And now we're seeing an effort to actually create frameworks to mandate this sort of negotiating. And the interesting thing about Australia is, in fact, it is the existence now of this law that has prompted negotiations. And in fact, neither Meta or Google have been designated as a platform, but nonetheless, there has been many, there have been many deals that have been concluded between news media outlets and the platforms more with Google than with Facebook to the sense of about $200 million. $200 million. I mean, that's that's not nothing. It's not what the industry has lost in ad revenue over the years, but it's definitely not nothing. One of the criticisms coming from Australia was that some of the negotiations that went on weren't very transparent, that they could potentially favor larger players, or that there were no there was no guarantee that publishers would have to use the additional revenue to hire journalists or prioritize diversity in newsrooms. Did Canada's Online News Act address any of these concerns? And do you think there are any lessons that the United States could potentially take away as it also considers similar rules? Yeah, I think the issue of what degree of transparency the individual deals between publishers and platforms should have either to a regulator or to the public has been a point of contention and debate. And, you know, there are really good, I think, arguments on both sides in terms of hearing from some publishers. You know, these are private commercial deals. We are not public on other commercial deals we do. But also, you know, the platforms are some of the most powerful companies in the world and the perception and and that the lack of transparency creates about whether or not there is any sort of compromise there, I think, is something that needs to be dealt with. And so what we saw in Canada is that they're trying to split the difference. And and this is the same recommendation I've made here to the U.S. policymakers is 
have a level of transparency to the regulator, and then reporting in aggregate. One of the big challenges is that not only are the deals not transparent, but it's hard to even, we don't have access to the data. Publishers don't have access to the data that they need in order to make a good evaluation of the value of news. Furthermore, I think that in Australia and you know, we're seeing this in policies here. the The way that news is valued, I think, is too myopic. It's really about this idea of referral traffic, and therefore, you hear a lot from, you know, the tech platforms saying, "Well, we we drive so much traffic to your publications, and you're not paying anything for it." Well, sure, but you are. Con- we're constrained in which platforms we can publish on, yeah. where we can advertise, where the audiences are. And in fact, news creates a lot of value outside of that just individual referral traffic link, right? So there was a study done in Switzerland that looked at the value that news provides to all users of Google search. So simply the presence of news on search made it more valuable. And when you took that off in this behavioral experiment that that they did there, they actually saw people changed their practices and they went directly to sites. They found Google search was less valuable. Mm -hmm. So we have to pull back to really think about the value of news, especially as we're in the era of disinformation, right? How do you fight disinformation if you take news off of platforms? News is the supply side of quality information, you know? Absolutely. I was actually about to ask about that, how technology platforms, these big, powerful players have responded to the Online News Act or to the U.S. Journalism Competition Preservation Act or similar measures. Now, like you said, companies, particularly Meta and Google, have claimed that perhaps they don't receive significant financial benefits from news sharing. These companies have also claimed that they actually deliver a lot of benefit to newsrooms by directing traffic. But I mean, mean, speaking for myself, I think 99% of the reason why I use these platforms is actually to find news. So I know it's very valuable to me. But I, I I did want to ask you a little bit about the response that we've seen from technology platforms and how having news on these platforms can potentially benefit both users and the companies themselves. Sure. So we've seen the platforms respond to these efforts in a variety of ways that include disinformation campaigns, Mm -hmm. attempts to manipulate the legal regulatory space and the publishing community and trying to divide it. So on disinformation, I mean, first of all, they really tried to convey the idea that small publishers did not benefit from the Australian law, and that's just not accurate. Sure, small publishers got less than big publishers, but that makes a lot of sense if you're determining value based on traffic, right? If you're bigger, you have more traffic. So I don't really understand that. They've also leveraged their monopolies to advocate and and lobby and propagandize against this legislation. So for example, when you go to a news site in you try to access news on Facebook in Canada, you get a message, as we heard from the Canadian minister yesterday, Saint-Ange, you get a message that says that this news is no longer available in Canada because of the Online News Act. That is not true. It's no longer available in Canada because Facebook does not want to comply with a democratically drafted 
legal regulatory regime. That is very different, but that conveys the idea that the government is somehow taking away people's news, which is not the case. In Brazil, the Google folks use the search landing page, which is one of the most valuable properties in the world on the internet, to propagandize against the the efforts there by saying that people were going to lose access to news. And I also heard from a reporter there that they reached out to the evangelical community and said, you're not going to be able to quote the Bible anymore on Google. So, you know, really underhanded tactics. And then we've seen that Google and Facebook have given thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars to individual news outlets through training or through grants in a way that is specifically appears to be focused on news outlets in countries that are considering regulation. And there's some great research that's been done on this that maybe we can we can put in the show notes. But it's really concerning if you see that like more than 6,000 of these, you know, small grants, et cetera, have been given in countries that are that are considering regulating them to publishers to essentially buy them off. And we are not talking about a lot of money here. I mean, we mentioned 200 million in Australia. That's really not a lot of money for a major news outlet. In Taiwan, it looks like they've bought off the press for about $10 million over three years. But, you know, it is hard if you're a tiny publisher and you're like, okay, $20,000 in the hand or a theoretical yeah. law over here, what do I do? And so that's really problematic. And and to, to the point about, you know, the, the, the platforms are not wrong. Absolutely, they provide value to news. Yeah. They are the platforms where a lot of people get their news. They drive referral traffic. Yes, but that is not what is the issue here? The issue is that these platforms also control the advertising infrastructure, access to audiences, and they, again, have this very permissive legal structure where they don't have the same constraints as publishers. So it's just very uneven. The issue is not that do they or do they not give some value. The fact is, is that publishers are not being compensated for the value that they provide to these platforms, both in terms of their products and now, of course, going into the era of generative AI. Speaking of generative AI, many of these laws, so Canada's Online News Act, Australia's News Media Bargaining Code, and even the first version of the U.S. Journalism Competition and Preservation Act, all of those were first introduced before the public research release of ChatGPT late last year. Now, I mean, it seems like so much has happened over the past few months. We've seen we've seen Google and Bing both announce plans to use chatbots to directly answer user searches. We've seen AI developers actually scrape the internet for articles. Many of them written by journalists in order to train their algorithms. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about this. How do you think this trend in artificial intelligence will affect news and other external websites? Sure. Well, first of all, let's be clear that the many of the major foundation models include a significant percentage of news. So one, one analysis found that almost 10% of the top sites in one of the major foundation models were news organizations, were from news organizations, and you can actually see specific URLs. That's really important, right? News is very valuable because it is accurate. It has, you know, it has quotes, which is real speech. It is syntactically accurate. They have corrections attached. It has really valuable metadata. It often has images that link up with the text. So there's all this like really valuable 
inherent content in, in news that is used by these training models. Furthermore, if you're going to create a real-time chatbot that is answering questions, where are you going to get the most updated information? A lot of that is going to come from news organizations, right? And so if you're if you're saying, you know, what what baby food should I buy for my new infant or or let's say dog food, maybe people aren't googling for baby food, I don't know. <laughs> but you know, okay, dog food. Well, you want to make sure that you're asking that chatbot that it knows that maybe there's a recall on that most recent food. Who do you think is publishing about that? The news mm-hmm. organizations. Journalism is how the public gets information about what's happening on a day-to-day basis. So these chatbots, these these efforts to provide real-time results are not going to be valuable if they don't include news. Now, Bing, for example, in its chatbot, they they say that they're listing publishers and that when they click through, those publishers will be compensated, but that is not sufficient. And in fact, some of the legislation, including the JCPA and other legislation that provide that these news media bargaining codes provide the opportunity for publishers to collectively negotiate for the use of their content, including crawling, because a lot of the ways that these these platforms are making use of the content is through crawling. And so it could cover the use in generative AI. And there is certainly Senator Klobuchar said yesterday that she would envision this would be able to be used to negotiate contracts related to licensing for AI models. And I think that's really important because this is, of course, the the we don't want to be fighting last decade's battles as we're entering the next decade. And if we don't get this right, the news media will face even greater sustainability challenges. And I want to push back on this idea that a website can just put a robot TXT file on and prevent a crawler. So you can't prevent a Google language model crawler from yeah. grabbing data and not also prevent the search crawlers. So then you would essentially be invisible on in the internet. But also, do we really want to remove the supply of quality information from the internet? We literally have disinformation, misinformation concerns around the world. So many policymakers who are like, what do we do about this? The answer is not to take off the supply of quality information. Say you want to play a musician on the radio. The musician doesn't have to block their songs from being played. It's simply that if you use it, you then have to pay them, right? So we need to flip this on its head and require that the wealthiest companies in the world that are making use of this pay for the content. Otherwise, they're developing a illegal products, in my opinion, and they're getting all of the financial benefits and they're creating a new economic logic that is going to be devastating to many industries, including journalism and other creative industries. Yeah. Yeah. Even though chatbots cannot replace humans. I mean, we've seen how chatbots have errors. They spew misinformation. You know, they can't represent diverse perspectives like a journalist can. I, I still worry about the effects that these chatbots will have on the on the industry. How have news organizations and journalists responded to these recent developments in generative AI? Have we seen the news media start to incorporate AI into its production So definitely we have seen a lot of media really focus on this issue, I think, faster and 
with a more critical gaze than we did in the social media era. So before I get into how they're using it in the newsroom, what's really important in terms of the journalism and generative AI is how does journalism cover generative AI? So I think we've seen a lot more critical coverage, which is good. I think it needs to be more critical. I think we need to get out of this idea that generative AI is somehow so complicated that we can't possibly understand or report it. Actually, we can. Let's break it down into component elements. Lots of data, lots of computational power, sophisticated math, wealthy companies, It's great to see reporting on the environmental impacts, for example, of of these choices. So that's the first way that we're seeing journalism deal with generative AI. I'd like to see more coverage of the monopoly issues that are really inherent in the generative AI race right now, rather than saying like, oh, look, there's all this competition. Like, actually, there's not because most of those companies have some level of investment from one of the big dominant tech firms. But in terms of how journalism and the news industry is incorporating AI, we've seen the Financial Times and Associated Press, for example, make private, non-transparent deals with OpenAI and and to create bespoke products Mm -hmm. and to license their content. So that's one way. We've also seen the incorporation of AI in some some ways that are more successful than others. So AI is good for kind of mundane, routine tasks, whether that's summarizing financial data for basic news stories that still need editorial review. We've seen really bad things happen when news organizations use generative AI to generate news content without having a human editor review it. I think CNET had like a significant number of errors that they had to go through and correct in auto-generated AI content. So that should be a big wake-up call. We're also seeing that news organizations are having to grapple with how do they authenticate the provenance of content and how do they authenticate content to know if it's real or not? How do you know that this video of X is true, especially as the technology gets more advanced. So that's that's already been an issue and that is increasingly of concern because you don't want to be the news organization get, that gets duped by a deep fake of the Pope wearing Bellanchino or whatever. And I think we're very much seeing experimentation Investigative reporters, I was just at the Investigative Journalism Network's conference in Sweden recently, and the investigative reporters are doing really interesting things with AI because they get these huge data sets, right? If you think about the Paradise Papers, the Panama Papers, they need to make sense of all of that. They need to figure out what's a passport, what's a picture, you know, what's a what's a useless piece of information, what how are these things connected? So it's a really interesting and dynamic time, I think, for using AI. But the key is you always have to have humans yeah. having oversight and editorial control over all of this. Yeah, yeah. I, I also wonder, going back to your earlier point about how technology has just changed the environment that journalists operate in, how that prevalence of deep fakes or how that prevalence of AI-generated context will change I mean, even how audiences view information, how people access information. Journalists will be working in an environment that has more spam and more fake generated images and videos. And I wonder if that will change how receptive people are to the information that they convey. I think so. I I do feel like we're at this tipping point where the, the past decade has been about 
sifting through all the crud and the crap and the disinformation and the propaganda. And I think we're at a tipping point now where that label, that quality, you know, the name is going to be important. So one of the challenges about the social media era is you couldn't tell the difference between, you know, the New York Times and Breitbart or Russia Today or whatever. Everything kind of looks the same and, and has the same value on social media. I think in the, as we shift into the era of generative AI and this issue of trying to authenticate what is real and what is not, we're going to see that brands, you know, journalism brands are going to become more important. So whether you're a well-known journalist or a local newspaper or whatever, that indication that you're actually a journalistic outlet, that you're you're a real outlet, you're not just a generative AI content producer is going to be important, you know, to a certain degree of users who are looking for factual information or or want to build community. Yeah. News isn't just about information. It is also about, you know, it has this cultural, ritualistic, community building factor to it. And so I think we'll see that will also become important because generative AI is not going to do that. No, no, I can't. I feel like a theme that has been coming up throughout this conversation is regulation or maybe just under regulation. You mentioned this unfettered ability for technology platforms to shape the rules of the game. And we've talked a little bit about the news media bargaining codes that we've seen emerge. But I was wondering if we can maybe talk about some of the broader policy measures that have been proposed, whether in the United States or around the world. Maybe if we could just start by talking about some of the interest in addressing this gatekeeper power of large technology platforms and how that could potentially affect the news media. I think addressing the gatekeeping power is really important. One of the things about these platforms, you know, a handful of platforms, they are infrastructural to news media. As uh, Rasmus Klein at the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism put it, you know, they're integral and inescapable to journalism. And frankly, I would say to the rest of the political economy, if you're a local business, and you want to reach your consumers, you have to be on Amazon, which means you have to play by their rules. So this idea of regulating technology companies and the specific ones that have this gatekeeping role is a recognition that these platforms play a role like a common carrier, for example, like the telephones or railways where they control a lot of other dimensions of business of of the economy. So that's a really positive development, I think. I do think we need to get more serious about looking at common carriage laws and thinking about whether we should redesignate these platforms as common carriers or impose anti-discrimination requirements on them and certainly to break up different parts of the businesses so that you are not, you know, the publishing platform the audience platform and the advertising platform and you have all the data and therefore you can do all the analytics and therefore you can create all the generative AI systems. I mean, the problem with generative AI is it actually 
reinforces, it has this monopolistic tendency because the more data you have, the more computational power you have, the better your models will be. And it's very expensive to run some of these systems. So that, again, reinforces monopoly tendencies. So it's good to see regulators starting to grapple with key issues like gatekeeping, like infrastructural roles. Yeah. Yeah. Going back to the common carrier, let's break that down for our our audience. If, say, Congress got together and decided on a bipartisan basis to pass a law making social media platforms or search engines common carriers, what what would that look like? Well, it might look like how we treat the phone companies. Mm -hmm. So we don't allow the phone company to listen in on our calls track who we talk to and when we talk to them, bundle all of that information together, sell that to advertisers and political campaigns to target us with. And then, you know, like we don't do that with telephone companies. So we could take the same approach to platforms or cloud services, for example. So treating them as you're not not allowing them to discriminate in traffic. So you can't charge some users more than others. You have to treat traffic the same. So this idea of kind of net neutrality principles. It would also look like addressing the special protections that platforms have from essentially under Section 230. So these safe harbor laws, which is sec- essentially exempts them from responsibility for what shows up on their platforms. And look, I think Back in the day, there was some rationale for adopting that sort of legislation. But the problem is they didn't think through what that meant in the long term. And the fact is the conditions are different. We are in a fundamentally different type of situation now that has to be rectified. Everything from online harassment to child sexual Mm -hmm. abuse material, terrorism, all, you know, disinformation. And yet, platforms have zero responsibility to address that. So I think we have to look at these exemptions from libel law and other protections. And I would say that as we've seen, actually copyright is really interesting because copyright is the one area of law where platforms actually are required to act when they are notified about a copyright violation. But the problem is, for example, they put in these notice and takedown regimes, which are automated because they have so much volume to deal with, but then we see how they're weaponized. So we also need to make sure that the systems put in place by these platforms are accountable. And we need to see, you know, we would see, I think, more transparency requirements and auditability into various different dimensions of the business, whether that's data, algorithmic transparency, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. The content moderation piece is really interesting because in a way, technology platforms directly compete with the news media. They compete for user screen time, user attention. They compete for digital advertising dollars. Yet... They can control the ranking algorithms that can affect traffic that's going to news websites. Yeah. I mean, but not only that, like look at what Twitter slash X, what Elon Musk has done. He has specifically degraded traffic to news outlets and journalists that he does not like or that have reported negatively against him. How is that legal? Yeah, blocking, blocking journalists, revamping the verification systems in ways that facilitate 
impersonation or fraud or misinformation towards the news media. Going going back to your point about algorithmic transparency, I did want to ask about an, another framework that was recently passed in the European Union, the Digital Services Act, that does impose stricter requirements for technology companies to explain how their ranking algorithms work and allow people to opt out of newsfeed profiling and to just impose stronger transparency requirements. Do you think this is a model that could work in the United States? I think it could be. I think it needs some work. First of all, default settings are really important. Actually, we're seeing that with the Department of Justice's case against Google right now. So whether or not there's transparency, the also the determination of what the default setting is going to matter in terms of in, in terms of transparency into algorithmic ranking. And, you know, I think that's part of a partial solution, but yeah. most people, honestly, they don't look at their settings and it's yeah. a lot of effort to require everyone to have to go in and, and figure that out. I mean, already we don't read the terms of service, Right. So I think we need to look at what is the default that we want? How do we design the default settings to cultivate the type of information communication system that we want? You know, the idea that you could turn on or off different types of algorithmic ranking, I think is interesting. I think it's also interesting to look at interoperability. So that would allow, say, if you really like your local newspaper or some organization that you affiliate with or the Library of Congress or whatever to to curate your feed, that that could be an option. But I think we also need to see bans on certain types of algorithmic curation. Like you should not be able to target Nazis or all sorts of other different types of of protected characteristics in combination with each other. I think we need much stronger protections that will prevent companies from figuring out what your political, religious, sexual, you know, all of those preferences are. And so that's not necessarily going to be addressed per se by the DSA type legislation, although I think it's a great step in the right direction. And Thank goodness that the EU is stepping in to regulate some of this since the U.S. Congress has been really, really, really slow and absent for too long. That makes a lot of sense. Transparency is important, but at the same time, we need boundaries on how technology companies operate. And that is an interesting idea about the Library of Congress or my local newspaper curating my newsfeed. I think I think I'd be I'd be curious to try that. Yeah, and that's also not necessarily the right answer, right? Because then you could also get your right-wing, your local right-wing extremist group doing the same thing, and that might exacerbate filter bubbles and and echo chambers. So, you know, I'm not proposing that that is a policy solution, but I think we should be looking at a wider array of solutions. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else that our audience should take away from this conversation? I think that as we're thinking about how to regulate tech platforms, how to regulate AI, we talk a lot about ethical AI, about responsible AI, and those are those are all important. But if we do not deal with the core monopolistic foundations upon which this system is being built, and if we don't address head-on the competition issues, I don't think that we're going to end up with an ethical or a responsible AI system. And so 
I would encourage people who are thinking about this and, and writing about this to incorporate thinking about the competition issues, about the monopoly and antitrust side of this problem, because we are already seeing that the wealthiest, most powerful companies in the world are dominating the AI space. Mm -hmm. We know that economic power translates into political power. And so we have to address that if we're going to aim for a different future than we've had over the past decade with the consolidation of power in a handful of technology companies. That makes a lot of sense. And that was actually one of my big takeaways from this conversation as well. A lot of these tools that we mentioned, whether the news media bargaining code or transparency, they're one tool and they can potentially provide some good. But at the end of the day, we need the entire toolbox. So we need structural change. We need limitations, stronger limitations on acquisitions or on com- or companies self-preferencing their own products or services or collecting personal information to target ads in ways that are super invasive and and also in ways that could reinforce their structural advantages in the market. So Courtney, thank you so much for joining us today. This was such an informative conversation. I feel like I learned a lot. (laughs) And I know that I'll continue to follow this topic and your work as the future of news continues to evolve. (laughs) Great. Well, thanks so much for having me on. And I look forward to listening to your future podcasts as well. Thanks for listening. See you on the next episode.